1: From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Wrights. says thank you for listening. When it comes to prominent cultural figures, we Georgians can take great pride. Jamie Barton is an opera superstar who has won every major prize in recent years and performs on the world's leading opera stages. She's also a musical omnivore who loves singing non-classical music. Jamie Barton joins us later this hour to talk about her upcoming recitals with the Atlanta Opera, winning the BBC Music Magazine's Personality of the Year Award and playing Julia Child in an opera about the chef at the end of this month. First, a prize-winning Georgia chef with quite a following himself. How to Cook, the new cookbook by Chef Hugh Acheson, is a labor of love, fatherly love concern for the well-being and independence of his teenage daughters became the basis for this book of building blocks and recipes for a lifetime of meals. Atchison is with us now. Welcome to City Lights.
0: Well, long-time listener, first-time guest, Lois.
1: I feel so honored. I hope you might want to be a repeat
0: guest. Well, I, I, I'm happy to be a repeat guest, but just the way you talk about music and jazz and things like that is a very, I have an affinity for. So I feel very much at home talking to you.
1: Oh, thank you. And I mean, if we're going to have a love fest, I adore your restaurants, your cooking. Well, thank you and let's let's talk about this book it begins with a list for a future generation and that list contains 22 items when did you compile it
0: you know i started writing a list for my kids about 10 years ago and it's gotten to be and this is a small atomizing of it but it's just mantras for living it's its ways to think about the world that i want them to look through the prism of of the good that i've i've figured out in this life so far and and to just give them a helping hand and how to be a in, inclusive member of a community and a and a part of a family and 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 all these things so it's just sort of you know it's ways to think about things and you know if it's if there's trash on the ground pick it up or if it's no one has a loving memory of a meal of pizza pockets, I think it's just important to remind them about where the goodness is in the world.
1: Would you want to read it? Do you want to talk about a few more highlights or should we save that for readers of How to Cook?
0: You know, I mean, it goes through. There, there's, I have a much longer list that I pushed on Instagram years ago, which, you know, said it's instructions and wariness, some of them, but it's also things like learn how to use a chainsaw. It might come in handy someday. But, you know, these ones are tip well, and salt is a flavor enhancer. So has MSG. There's nothing wrong with either in moderation. You know, you don't grocery shop while hungry. You know, it's things that our parents taught us, but Sometimes these things need to be written down so we remember. But the most poignant thing about having that list on Instagram is that I got a ton of messages about people mimicking that list and and making their own for their own kids and posting on our fridge. And that becomes just a relevant family document for the entirety of everyone's lives within that household. And and I think we need more of that these
1: days. Oh, I think it's beautiful. My favorite item on the list is... Feed your friends and family, feed kind strangers, realize the power of giving nourishment.
0: You know, nourishment is such a powerful word these days. You know, it, the, the pandemic has been so crazy for everyone and everybody's working so hard to try and figure it out and deal with isolation and mental health. But but the difference, the sincere difference between nutrition and nourishment is is just so Uh, amazingly abundant right now. Nourishment implies its warmth, its empathy, its understanding. There's an emotional versus just the scientific aspect of nutrition, which is sustenance. But nourishment is another level that I think that we all are yearning for right now. And if there's anything that good that comes out of a pandemic, it's a willingness and a want for people to learn how to cook again, which we've seen across the country and across the world. Because, well, if you're locked in your house for 24 hours a day, you have to do something.
1: Yeah, but not everyone does it with the same approach. Would you explain your approach to cooking as it's set forth in the beginning of this book? This book is
0: kind of looking at if cooking is a series of techniques and we eschew recipes for a little while, not the recipes aren't good. Recipes are great, but recipes are a specific thing where I want to get down to the basics of cooking via technique. So I want everybody to envision cooking like it's a Lego set. And each piece of the Lego is a Piece of technique, whether it be roasting a chicken or poaching fish or making a salad dressing or a sauce or a pesto, all those are individual pieces. And with them, if you understand those things, then you can build meals. And you can build meals without recipes. You can just open up a fridge and see that you have spinach and eggs and some rice. And you can cook the rice and saute the spinach and poach an egg. And then you pull out the sriracha and a couple of crunchy peanuts. And and you suddenly have a nourishing and healthy meal that's built just on your understanding of those techniques. So if if cooking's like a Lego set, I just have a bigger Lego set than most people. And I tend not <laughs> to leave them on the floor where I'll step on them.
1: <laughs> you do appear to be Impeccably well organized. You, if there's one takeaway I have from this book, beyond the family love, it's that I should make more lists in life. I mean, you even describe recipes as lists.
0: They are. I mean, we—you we, have to structure food in a really step-by-step environment, so it makes sense. It's funny that recipe writing is is much more difficult than I think people give it credit for, because it, you know the description of action within a recipe in a really itemized way is is kind of difficult. And then you know you're also trying to make sure that you're speaking to every person out there, regardless of their cooking aptitude. Um, and, you know, I remember writing my first book and somebody commenting that it, w- it was a cake recipe of some type of like upside down pear cake. And uh, somebody said it was good, except uh, the the eggshells were a little bit difficult to digest. And, <laughs> you know, so I, I, I don't know. I don't I don't know when that happens, what to do. But, yeah, I don't have a list for that, Lois.
1: No, I guess you will make one, though, because it is something you are inclined to do and you'll pass along that information to those you love. The musician in me loves that you describe good food as a soundtrack to your life. Would you elaborate on that Hugh?
0: Well, I mean, a soundtrack uh, soundtrack is the backbone of a movie in so many ways and if your life's like a movie i mean hopefully it's not like mommy dearest but you know it's it, it can be a, a good film too which mommy dearest is just a little sad but the, the the songs that comprise that movie in your life are like food and you know the the way you you listen to music on a regular basis i listen to a lot of jazz so i listen to a lot of uh, people like archie shepp And, you know, that comes up on a regular basis in my week. And thus, you know, in the same way, a beautiful salad with a poached egg comes up on a regular basis in my week. And I think the understanding of food and its place in your fridge and the efficiency that you have for it is the same as that backdrop of music. It's kind of the metronome of your life. And I think the people who eat really well and that doesn't imply expensively. There's this idea that food's expensive is, is true, but not true at the same time. I can cook just as many meals. I could probably cook two dinners for four people for the cost of going to a fast food restaurant. And you just have to understand that about food. But, but that metronome of life with food is, I think, a beautiful thing. And I think that people who eat well have proven to be healthier and, and more giving to society and their communities.
1: You point out how you should shop yeah would would you talk about that because I was impressed by just the good common sense and wisdom in that section
0: you know it, it's funny that, that grocery stores have been laid out in very very specific manners for a really long time and and they're meant to make you you know, there's a reason there's candy by the checkout. And there's a reason why all the gum is there. Those are last minute purchases. They're never on sale, et cetera, et cetera. But the periphery of the grocery store is really interesting to me because that's where you technically really want to be. Because if I can teach you how to make a a vinaigrette from scratch, there's no reason ever to go down the salad dressing aisle ever again, except to buy olive oil or vegetable oil. So the periphery is where the fresh food lies, you know, as the produce goes into deli, goes into the meat counter, goes into the fish counter, rounds out to dairy, goes to the frozen, and then you end up in pharmacy and then you're checking out. So it's the aisles in between that have the stuff with the unpronounceable ingredients in them. And all food should be comprised of food that you can pronounce. And you need to probably stay away from a lot of the stuff that you can't pronounce. And and that's just because a lot of that stuff is just, you don't notice it, but it's packed with sugar. You know, the the idea that when we talk about frosted flakes versus raisin bran, the fact that raisin bran has a lot more sugar in it than frosted flakes is mind-numbingly weird to me, but it's honest. So if we just then make, granola from scratch we know exactly what's in it so and that's that's all about that circle of the grocery store
1: and you also point out that it's great to drop in on local farmers markets and that farm to table need not be something only in northern california that's frightfully expensive
0: yeah i i It's, there is a beautiful thing about, well, buying a from a farmer's market makes you understand the seasons. And I think that's critically important to food because I'm the son of an economist. I wanna buy apples when they're at their lowest price point. Well, the lowest price point for North Georgia apples should be, well, right now. And, and that type of realization with food that you understand when broccoli comes in this season, when the beautiful spring leeks are there. Um, and it just gives you a better holistic idea of, of what's happening within your community. The inclusion of farmers markets and farmers and bringing them in and seeing those people who produce our food, makes food a lot more appreciated I think to us and the toil that goes into farming, and I mean I, we're seeing farmers' markets. I live in Athens, and the farmers' market here is is thriving more than ever, and those farmers are are getting their dues for working really hard for you know decades and decades and uh, they, these aren't the farmers who get big subsidies. these are hardworking small farms producing beautiful product. I think that that's why we need to support people it's I, I, just, I always want to know have a good aspect of where my food comes from and that's understanding the name of the person who who dug it up
1: and as you point out you like to shop to give food the respect it deserves
0: yeah i think that it, it, it look it's not altruistic we all have to buy food that we can afford to buy but i mean there's so many ways of giving respect to food in the proper ways i think for lower income Americans the SNAP uh, doubling of food stamps, for lack of a better term, or SNAP dollars uh, at farmers markets, which is a very popular program spearheaded by uh, uh, an amazing group out of Connecticut, the Wholesome Wave. And, you know, so food can be appreciated and still be affordable for all Americans. But we just have to make sure that those programs stay intact and that everybody wins from the farmer to the consumer in localizing food to the best of our ability.
1: Hmm. You lay out 25 building blocks, and I love that you pose the question and then provide the answer. These simple questions such as, why do I want to make this? Why do I want to learn to make this? And how do I use this? Here, in addition to providing these guidelines, and techniques for your daughters. I wondered if some of this was rooted in your experience as a self-taught chef.
0: It is and it isn't. You know, the term self-taught chef is always a little problematic because, you know, though I didn't go to cooking school and I slogged through two years of political philosophy before realizing that wasn't for me, I worked in amazing kitchens along the way and staged at a number of places in New York and got taught a lot. I, got, I learned a lot in places that were not the best places to work. I learned what not to do. So I was taught by chefs along the way, but I also read a lot and I documented a lot and I made a lot of lists. and made a lot of pictorial descriptions of food that helped me understand it and helped me evolve it. You know, I'm looking at the page of just simplistically baked sweet potatoes. Sweet potatoes have so much beautiful sugar naturally in them that when you bake them, it just comes to the surface and they get beautifully tender and pulpy. And then you can do a number of different things to finish them. But if you know that core idea of how to do that sweet potato perfectly and make it just melting, um, which is it's sweet potato season two, that those are good things as, as those building blocks, as those Lego pieces. And that's kind of the way I think. It's like food needs to make rational sense. I'm not going to be the chef who creates whole new vistas of food like Grand Akats say at Alinea. I'm going to be much more of a rational chef pulling from history of food and pulling from proper technique.
1: But you're also a chef who is not a snob, I mean, not that anyone who would be that would identify as a snob, but you, I mean, look at the reach of your fame, and yet there, there's nothing fussy or pretentious about your approach, and uh, that's really conveyed very vividly in this book.
0: Yeah, you know, on a professional level, I've been spending a lot of time at my restaurant in Athens and kind of when we reopened after being closed for three months, I kind of sat down with the staff and the kitchen staff and the chefs. And I said, look, we need to be making food right now that makes emotional sense to people, that pulls at a heartstring and is simple but comforting. And it, most of all, it just has to make sense. Like now is not the time to take culinary chances people want that big embrace of authenticity and warmth and in some ways commonality. You know, I've never been scared to do that type of food. The way we make it better and different is, is again, technique and and the best ingredients resetting to a simple formula has made us do really well. I think we're doing some of the best work we've done at the restaurant level, but it kind of stretches to everything. You know, right now my house, smells a lot of turkey broth because I just, you know, this morning I took down a turkey and I'm roasting the breast to make some, I'll make some baguette sandwiches. But then I've got turkey stock going on and, but all of that, it makes me feel good. Um, So many things make me feel good these days and in the the hardest of times. But if I can help out my community and if I can live in an environment of turkey essence in the air, I think we're (laughs) winning in some ways.
1: Oh, I think that's marvelous. How old are your girls now?
0: They're 16 and 18. Clementine's the youngest at 16, so she's a g- virtual junior in high school. Oh, my. And then Beatrice is a virtual freshman in university, and she goes to University of Toronto, but uh, she's going from here in Athens online.
1: And do you all enjoy cooking together, or have they cooked for you based on some of these guidelines?
0: They have over the years. They know a lot about food. You know, kids kids are sponges, and kids learn what is in their environment, and they pick up on things. They often don't have to be taught directly. They just, they learn from watching, and it's rote to them. So they've learned a lot through that, and, and it's been amazing to have them have those skill sets to get through life. Like The biggest thing about kids these days, and I think what, what this generation really needs to concentrate on is being a kid is harder than ever. You know, approaching like 18 to 22 is the hardest time in your life. And I just want all those people, regardless of where they're coming from, regardless of who they are, or their economic background, or color of their skin or anything, I just want to give them the independence and the fortitude and empowerment to make a good meal and nourish themselves. Because I think that's what's missing so much in in how we're not arming and equipping this next generation with that empowerment to just be able to say, I got this.
1: Well, you certainly provide that advice and empowerment in these recipes. Speaking of students, and music i saw that on november 15th you will be doing an event with the atlanta music project
0: this pandemic world of business as a chef is very strange but there's the restaurants which you know are, are operating go less than normal capacity but that but really getting by is i've been doing a lot of zooms for some corporates and parties and things like that where i do a recipe and people follow along. They get the recipe in advance. And, and it's, it's it's amazingly engaging to watch these like 20 different households cooking your food as you lead them through it. It's kind of like the uh, strangest jazzercise class of all time. Um, <laughs> but it, it, it works. And it's really engaging to see these uh, disparate groups of people co- all cooking the same thing and pretty much nailing it. So we're going to do the same thing for the Atlanta Music Project, which It's just a great organization, and they reached out and asked if I could help them out, and I was like,
1: sure, I can. That's easy. I think that you are an absolute role model of nourishment, of what's good and best for all of us here at and This has been a delight. I am not a teenager, and I'm way past the age of going out on my own in this world, but I'm going to make many recipes and have learned a great deal from How to Cook. Thank you so very much. Thanks, Lewis. James Beard, award-winning chef and Georgia restaurateur Hugh Atchison discussing his new book, How to Cook, Building Blocks and 100 Simple Recipes for a Lifetime of Meals. Here Atchison will host a scrumptious virtual cooking class that will benefit the Atlanta Music Project on November 15th at 6 p.m. More information will be on our website wabe.org/citylife Children's books are often full of larger-than-life characters and fantastic scenarios. A new book finds both of those in a father and in a little girl's hair. The book is called Hair Love, in which the young black girl introduces herself, saying, my name is Zuri, and I Have Hair That Has a Mind of Its Own. The story was written by Matthew Cherry, who is a filmmaker and executive at Jordan Peele's Monkey Paw Productions and a former NFL player. He created the book along with illustrator Vashti Harrison.
2: I reached out to Vasti through Instagram, through the DM, and I was like, hey, I know you don't know me from a can of paint, but I also know this mutual friend. And, you know, I, I have this idea about doing a short film about a father trying to learn how to do his daughter's hair for the first time, and the hair gets a mind of its own. And, um, you know, I didn't know if you had any time available to kind of help me, you know, with some with some artwork. And, you know, luckily she was down. So the first tweet that I sent out about it was just like, I want you guys to meet Zuri. And it was just an image, uh, a solo image that she did and it just went so viral. It like had and I'm getting like 50,000 likes, like 30-40,000 retweets and it was then I was like, "Oh my god, like this is going to be something really special because they haven't even met the dad yet or or even know what the story is." And um, you know, that's the power of her artwork. She just is so authentic. It's so it's done in a way that I've never really seen it done in that she just represents like kids and adults and characters in such a unique way and it just has so much life and so much appeal to it and um... yeah it was at th- th- that moment I knew we had something special
3: I don't remember the pitch exactly <laughs> but I think really all he had to say was animated short film natural hair and I already knew what I needed to do I thought it would be a good opportunity to let people know that I'm interested in the animation world because I I've been illustrating and writing children's books for a couple of years and I thought this would be a good opportunity. So, I kind of knew exactly what we needed to do. Regardless of what the film would be, I knew that this kind of visual development work needed to catch viewers, catch people on social media, the you know, the kinds of people that are swiping, swiping, swiping really quickly and I wanted to catch them off guard and and create something that looked Like it could have just come straight out of like a Disney Pixar studio because we never get to see black girls in that form. I mean, there's only a handful of black girl characters that that have been rendered in 3D animation before. And Mm -hmm. I knew that people would be engaged in this and want to see more of it. So it didn't take a lot of direction.
2: We really wanted to be specific, particularly with the dad. So, you know, there was this kind of evolution, like when we did the Kickstarter campaign, you know, he was kind of like a little safer. He was the, the description I gave her was a gentle giant. And so, you know, he had these locks, he had these really broad shoulders. And, um, you know, he like looked like he probably was like 40, you know, 45 years old. And when we had when we did the, when we ended up getting the book deal. Um, you know our our editor and the head of Coquila Books, who we ended up going with, she was just so amazing, and she just is all about representation and authenticity. And you know, I remember having a conversation with my manager, like, you know, we should really try to push this thing. Forty year old dads, you know, that that have yeah that look safe, you know. I mean, they don't really have the same issues that you know young fathers have that have tattoos, that have long locks, you know, that wear the slide flip flops with the socks. We just really wanted to represent for people that. Just really can try to con- combat stereotypes in the best way that we could, and you know, to have a father with an arm sleeve tattoo and a children's book, and you know, and it's normal. Like it's so amazing to me. Like that blows my mind every time.
3: Matthew worked really closely with Namrata, the editor, and and I worked really closely with Jasmine, our art director. And so at that point our job is to bring that story to life. So it's not an animated film anymore. This is a picture book. So our job then was to figure out how to make this feel special and make it feel like it's something completely different. Like at that point, I was really thinking about the reader. They put a lot of thoughtfulness into creating a story that would resonate between fathers and daughters, but also, like, it's a story about love. It's about this relationship between someone who cares so much for someone else to try to do things that you know you're not very good at.
1: Illustrator Vashti Harrison with author and filmmaker Matthew Cherry. Hair Love won this year's Oscar for Best Animated Short Film. With inspiration from the film Hair Love, last week, Netflix announced they will debut a new animated series called My Dad the Bounty Hunter. This is City Lights on WABE Atlanta. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. We like to think of Jamie Barton as Georgia's sweetheart, though she really is opera sweetheart worldwide. For their annual awards in June, BBC Music Magazine chose the American Mezzo as Personality of the Year, and her cover photo has the headline Voice of a Generation. It's time to check in with this glorious singer who lives in Atlanta when she's not performing on the leading opera house stages at home and abroad. Jamie Barton, welcome back to City Lights.
4: Hi, Lois. Thank you so much for having me.
1: You have some exciting events coming up. Before we get to those, let's talk a bit about the BBC Music Magazine Award, the cover story emphasizes that in addition to having this exquisite voice, you were recognized for raising awareness of equal rights. How have you used your stardom to promote tolerance?
4: Well, it's it's certainly a part of every conversation that i try to have <laughs> you know whether it be through my social media to fans or within developing new projects having different perspectives and inclusion in the arts and in life is just something that i'm i'm, I'm really really passionate about. And so it's just been a topic of, of conversation that to me was a no-brainer. And luckily, I have a team around me, my management, and my publicists, who are all very, very uh, supportive of, of that as well. I, I certainly, I don't think, would have had the opportunity to use my voice in this kind of way without their help. But really, when it comes right down to it, I'm just speaking on something that I'm personally really passionate about. And I decided a couple of years ago that if I was going to be lucky enough to have a platform, that I should use my voice for good. And so this is
1: just a a part of that. And how have you demonstrated that? In the magazine, they mentioned when you sang the concluding night of the BBC proms, which is itself such a stellar achievement to be chosen for that program.
4: Yeah. The last night of the proms was just an amazing experience in so many ways, because like you said, it's just a, it's a huge honor to be invited to be the guest of the last night of the proms. But one of the things that happens is that the last night of the proms guest usually brings some sort of aspect of their personality to their performance. And Since it was the 50th year of Stonewall and since I am a queer woman and I've always felt included in the LGBTQIA family, even before I knew that I was bisexual, I just decided that raising the pride flag would be something that I could really, really get behind something that I felt very, very passionate about. And bisexual visibility is something that I also feel very passionate about as a bisexual individual myself. And so I had a lovely dress designed, an incredible dress, actually.
1: Oh, it is fabulous.
4: (laughs) it's it, it's designed to have the bisexual flag kind of dyed into this cape element which is just glorious and so I got to raise the pride flag while wearing my bi flag dress I, I think the combination of you know the classical music the crowd all of that it's I don't think that there's been a more thrilling night of my entire life <laughs>
1: There have been many, of course, the thrills are for the audience just hearing you sing. But Jamie, I I hesitate to say your appeal goes beyond your singing because somehow that minimizes this magnificent voice. But it's you. It's your personality. And I think there are many of us who wonder how you stay so grounded. Well,
4: you know, I've I've got wonderful family and friends, and it's important to me to still have my feet on the ground. I came from north of Rome, Georgia. My family still lives up in the valley that I came from. They literally just got running water two years ago. <laughs> you know, so it's really off the grid a place that classical music just doesn't go. And there's something really wonderful about that for me. I I was able to discover classical music through NPR, actually. (laughs) It was the Chattanooga station that I could get when I was a kid, but I would listen to it at nighttime. But all of this is to say is that classical music, for all of its trappings, for, for the formal wear, for the very glamorous places that I get to sing, for the glamorous travel that I get to do, is really there for everyone it's there for the taking for even a kid from the hills of georgia and it's the people who surrounded me at that point in my life and in college who are are still very dear friends and family who i feel like i have my grounding in when i come home these are the people who are my comfort and they live right here in Atlanta, Georgia, <laughs> you know? So it's it's having this home base, having these people in my life to, to not only just remind me of where I come from, but for, for me to get to have a chance to just be myself. I think, you know, people might think that I've changed or had to change from where I came from, coming from a, like I said, not a very glamorous place. But that being said, I, I think, half of the fun of going through this career is being exactly who I am and still having (laughs) this opportunity to sing, you know, in some of the greatest places on earth. Uh, You know, so it's, it's, it's one foot off the ground, one foot on the ground, if that makes any sense. (laughs) It,
1: It makes great sense. Two wonderful recitals for the Atlanta opera are on your calendar. First, the mezzo-extravaganza on Tuesday evening, November 10th. What can you tell us about this program?
4: Oh, my gosh. I'm so excited about this. So the Atlanta Opera Players, the group of us that are uh, working with the Atlanta Opera this year to fill out the casts or everything that they're doing in the, in the Big Tent series and to do other concerts— we happen to have four of Sopranos, me, Megan Marino, Daniela Mack, and Gabby. She's the young artist that is with the Atlanta Opera Studio this year. And so between Gabby and the, the other three of us that are all about the same generation, we kind of figured, you know what? this could be a lot of fun. Mezzo Sopranos, we, we get along. We're a very chill group of people. So we're going to do a concert that kind of explores the different rep that we Mezzos get to do and also has a, a lot of tongue-in-cheek kind of moments. In. Oh,
1: I love it. The Atlanta Opera website says this extravaganza celebrates the incredible work of those who sing at the sultry end of the musical staff. So for those who may not understand the difference between a mezzo range and a soprano range, or more specifically, the voice qualities, how would you explain it?
4: Oh, I would absolutely explain it that, Sopranos and mezzos are very similar, it's just that sopranos tend to sit a little higher. They have voices that one might describe as silvery or light or or higher, that kind of sound. If you think of Dolly Parton, she is definitely a soprano. If you think of Alison Krauss, she's also a soprano. Mezzos sit a little bit lower. Their voices are are lower than sopranos, and uh, my favorite descriptors for mezzos are very often velvety or chocolatey, sometimes burnished kind of quality to a mezzo soprano's. And we just literally our voices are just a little bit lower than sopranos. So yeah, that that sultry <laughs>
1: descriptor there that's kind of perfect, actually. <laughs> so what some of the sultry repertoire? Just to if- a few things that you can tell us might be on this program.
4: Absolutely. Well, we're certainly going to be getting into some art song. Uh, we're, we're all going to be bringing different offerings of our own. I can certainly uh, tease out that I will be doing one of my tracks from "All Who Wander." I The, uh, the, the big thing that I'm super excited about, though, since we have four mezzos, and of course, one of the greatest, sultriest roles that exists in the opera <laughs> Uva is Carmen. <gasps> Talk about the most sultry role ever! All four of us are going to sing different arias of that one role. I'm super looking forward to hearing Daniela mack do this too. Oh man, I've heard her Carmen is really fantastic. I've never gotten to sing Carmen. I just sing the Habanera, which a lot of people know, and that's what I'll be singing on this. But we're, we're going to be having fun, fun with that. I'm I'm very much looking forward to that particular set.
1: <laughs> oh. Can't wait to hear this concert. On November 15th, Sunday afternoon, you will sing in a variety show, Crossroads. We spoke with Michael Mays a few weeks ago about this event. How would you describe this program? Oh, man. I think the the best description of this
4: program is the music that we want to get to sing that is not classical music. So we're going to be doing things that are all over the map. The group of us that are going to be doing it is kind of perfect too, because Meg Marino and Mike Mays, their husband and wife, actually, they've done some really wonderful kind of crossover concerts. They did one for Central City that I know is up on YouTube, where they sing everything from Chris Christopherson to Jake Heggie. And It's just phenomenal. Mike can do this kind of old school kind of Hank Williams sound. And Meg is just amazing. And Morris Robinson's going to be on this as well. So we're really borrowing from kind of everything we've wanted to get to do that isn't classical music. Having a whole bunch of classical music singers doing not classical music.
1: I'm truly crossing the road. When it comes to music, you've been an omnivore for your entire life, Jamie. I know that your parents, you've lovingly described as hippies who listened to Grateful Dead, Led Zeppelin. This is what your little baby Jamie ears first heard. Absolutely. And honestly, you know what?
4: I'm thinking of it now. One of the the things that I'm going to be doing on, well, a couple of the things that I'm going to be doing on this concert, my parents introduced me to. I'm going to be singing Atlanta by Allison Krauss, which I'm really looking forward to to get to sing Atlanta in Atlanta. <laughs> same
1: old place, same old city. What can I do? I'm falling
4: I'm just an old hound dog Roaming around, oh Lord I've got all this in heaven above And then my mom, I'll never forget, gosh, I was probably somewhere around 13 years old, 13 or 14, when the Lilith Fair uh, tour was starting. And I think in its second or third summer of touring, my mom brought me to Atlanta to come see it. And I will never forget Bonnie Raitt. And she brought Emily from the Indigo Girls and Sarah McLaughlin with her to sing a trio version of Angels from Montgomery. Oh. And so we're going to be, I think, doing that one together. Uh, at least a few of us are going to
1: be singing "Angel from Montgomery, which I'm really looking forward to. Let's talk about an opera at the end of November. You will sing... The role of Julia Child in a fabulous one-act opera, Bon Appetit. What can you tell us about immersing yourself in the role of Julia? Julia Child, talk about one of the greatest
4: operatic characters to try and sing. <laughs> she, she is an opera in and of herself. She really was. Uh, so this, this little opera, it's about a 20, 25 minute presentation. She bakes a chocolate cake. Le gâteau or chocolat luminous brune. <laughs> <laughs> <And> <laughs> it is so much fun. I've, I've gotten to do this one several times. And this time I got to do it on film. One of my colleagues, some, one of my very, very, very dear friends, Ryan McKinney, who is also one of the Atlanta opera players, has started doing film. And so he's been filming operas, did a, a really beautiful Winkensport for Houston Grand Opera, which was just hilarious, actually. But we decided to get together and to film Bon Appetit. So it is 20 minutes of me literally making a cake as though I am on her cooking show it's actually modeled after an episode of her cooking show um, and it's, it's just as fun and kooky as, as she is so ready to assemble the rest of the batter and rather than carb, this cake is going to have cornstarch in it because chocolate is heavy and we want a beer I delicate cake, almost like a souffle. I'm with you, sister. So three quarters cup of custard. When when I was putting her together for the first time, you know, I was thinking, okay, I really want to go back to the essential Julia Child, who she was. You know, do I, I went into my score and I literally wrote in the inflections of her voice. How she pronounced things. She actually, she actually mispronounces espresso. I, I, I'm convinced that the reason that so many people say espresso is because she—that's how she pronounced it. So when I sing this role and she says, you know, and uh, you know, add some instant espresso, I say espresso rather than espresso. <laughs> But I realized in putting it together with the the original director that I worked with, Ned Canty, that really the, the idea of Julia is a composite of so many different actors. It's not just Julia Child, you know, it's, it's also Meryl Streep and, you know, so many different people who kind of make up this Julia character that we have in our, our mind. So it's much less of a a real truthful representation of who she was as a human and much more of an honoring of her legacy through the, the joyful, bubbling,
1: operatic presentation that we all kind of have in our head. I enjoyed reading up on this. The composer is Lee Hoybee, and it was actually the actress Jean Stapleton who yes. played Edith and All in the Family, not to mention a brilliant stage career she had before that famous role. But she was the one interested in this. Have you seen the letters exchanged between Jean Stapleton and Julia Child, Jamie? I have not. Oh, my gosh. I didn't even know they existed. Oh, talk about grace and good manners and good humor and everything you would have thought about Julia and wanted to know about Jean Stapleton all rolled into this. Apparently, Julia was on board from day one, but her suggestion first was to make a bouillabaisse. Can you imagine yourself shelling lobster and shrimp and chopping up fish on stage while you were singing?
4: you know quite honestly i think the only difference in the uh the difficulty of cooking is just that doing the bouillabaisse it would turn into a wagner length opera (laughs) Mm. (laughs) because quite quite honestly in this one i actually do have to separate egg whites from egg yolks there's a whole point where we do uh a race between me and the stand mixer for who can beat up the egg whites the quickest, you know, so there, there's a lot of cooking proficiency that goes into to doing this particular thing. But yeah, I could imagine with bouillabaisse, it would definitely be a much longer opera.
1: Oh, yeah. The other suggestion she threw out was something that was served to Napoleon <laughs> after a battle victory except you would have to have served the meat on a saber. Yeah,
4: <laughs> Honestly, I, I'm so glad that they didn't do anything with meat because I'm just <laughs> imagining trying to do, the, the recipe is already very complicated actually before I did it for the first time I actually at home tried to make le gâteau chocolat l'éminence brune, this chocolate souffle like cake. And it was absolutely delicious, and it was absolutely 1,000% chocolate pancakes. It did not
1: fry at all. Jamie, you had me at chocolate. The thought of you, Julia, chocolate cake, singing, acting, it can't possibly get any better. Now, will this be available after... Houston Grand Opera's release? Yes, I believe so.
4: In fact, I'm I'm fairly certain that it, it will go up on Marquee TV, uh, which is an online platform. And if it's anything like their, their most recent uh, presentation, it should be up for a couple of weeks at least.
1: Jamie Barton, it just gets better and better every time we speak. I guess that's because you only get better and better. So much love to you and thanks for all that you do.
4: Absolutely return to you, Lois. I, I can't wait for the time that you and I are back in the studio and getting to speak right next to each other.
1: Internationally celebrated opera singer and Georgia's sweetheart, Jamie Barton. For more information on her upcoming concerts with the Atlanta Opera, check out our website at wabe.org citylights City Lights. You've been listening to City Lights, WABE's daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Atlanta Symphony Music Director Robert Spano will be our guest. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.